Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Today we have an amazing guest who I will be uh, introducing in a little bit, but allow me to first situate and lay the scenes. Um, my name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and teaching here in Japan and also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Um, today our guest is also uh, someone who is uh, with Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. So you're hearing, uh, seeing uh, Mark Bookman here on screen with me. Hello, Mark. Thank you for joining today. Hey, Jackie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're going to have a fun uh, discussion today. Of course, um, a little bit about Enjoy. We're a Japan-based global-facing business uh, working in English and Japanese and French. And we're committed to providing fun, engaging, and evidence-based diversity, equity, inclusion, and innovation training uh, and also consulting supports to leaders. So, uh, of course, uh, Mark and I know that diversity rocks innovation. Uh, and we believe that inclusive innovation is really what we need to be building out, uh, working with leaders, with companies, with organizations, so that innovation um, is really supporting equity, equality, and it really is powering our people's systems. And so this live stream is shining a spotlight on all the different individual thought partners in the Enjoy Diversity and, uh, and Innovation Network. Uh, and we thought partner out loud for about an hour. Uh, we come together without our business cards, so just as sort of two human beings. Um, and we learn from each other's experiences, our worldviews, uh, our lived realities, our identities, and of course, all of our diversities. So today's show featuring Mark Bowman, who started out as an Enjoy Thought Partner, and I will give a shout out to Josh. Um, Josh Grisdale is the, actually the person who brought us together last year. Um, he had been featured on a global summit panel that I had been organizing around changing the face of uh, inclusive diversity or inclusive leadership. And so Josh was, was featured there. And uh, he, as we were talking more and more, Josh said, oh, Really, Jackie, you you need to you really need to meet Mark. You, you, I think you and Mark are going to be two peas in a pod. And so he kept saying, I, we, I need to get you two together. So thank you to Josh for connecting us. And um, I must say, it's been such a pleasure in what, six short months? Really, uh, some amazing mind melts. <laughs> so welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 11. And um, Mark, today's a special day. It is. <laughs> today's a really special day so first off maybe we could talk about today is your can i give away your age by all means okay uh so today is your 30th birthday i have i brought it i have this. oh i know if you can see it oh i wonder if you can't see it i've got a hat oh no you can't see it <laughs> there it is there's the hat i don't know if it shows up but anyhow this is a happy birthday hat and congratulations on well in such 30 30 short years accomplishing very much and can i call you doctor you can now officially can i okay i know i know graduation is until what like june and then sometimes people get fussy around that but dr mark bookman congratulations uh mark who just defended his uh, doctoral thesis as well, um, and is now joining the circles and will be having uh, hopefully a book soon to be published featuring all of the research you've been doing um, over the years to, to make that milestone happen. So congratulations on two counts. Um, and maybe we can dive straight in um, and learn more about your background and um, how is it that you identify and sort of situate your own core identities and your own passion projects? Sure. Well, thank you so much, uh, really, for the introduction, for the congratulatory remarks, for having me here today. Um, so in terms of myself, uh, I view myself uh, professionally as a historian of disability policy and minority social movements in Japanese and transnational contexts. Um, that research and identity comes out of my personal experiences living and working in Japan and the United States as a uh, disabled researcher. Um, and more specifically, as a wheelchair user with a rare muscle condition that affects around six people on the planet um, and essentially makes my body weaker over time. Okay. So you mentioned that today is a special day and let me kind of pick up on that note as a story into my own, or as a starting point into a story about my own identity uh, mm -hmm. and kind of how I'm coming to sit here before you today. 
Um, so today is my 30th birthday. I was not supposed to live past 30 days, let alone 30 years. Yeah. Now, I, I was born 16 weeks early. Wow. Um, in, back in 1991. My body lengthwise was roughly as long as my dad's wristwatch. Um, wow. You know, you could fit his wedding, his wedding ring around my thigh. Just, I was very, very, very premature and very small. Um, and for that reason uh, alone, you know, since I was very young, a lot of my body uh, did not work in the way that we might expect a young, uh, healthy child to, uh, to be able to function. So I had uh, muscle issues. I was always very weak as a child. Um, mm. And because of that, um, for a while, the doctors thought, well, okay, it's his prematurity. He'll, he'll you know, keep reaching a milestone. It might be a bit slower than everyone else, but otherwise he's fine. There's nothing wrong. Um, that began to change when I was around eight. Um, by that point in time, we realized not only was I, you know, going slower, I was actually going in reverse. My muscles okay. were getting weaker. So it wasn't just an issue of, you know, being a premature, a born premature there. They started to tune in to realize there were some other complicating factors. Exactly. So they began to expect uh, a number of conditions, things like muscular dystrophy. Um, I was put through a battery of tests uh, when I was uh, in my, you know, eight, nine years old uh, time. But really, it was when I was 10 that uh, the full reality of the situation became known. Um, the muscle disease that I had, which was still kind of unclear, still under investigation, um, had come to my heart um, and has started to weaken my heart to the point where I needed to have a heart transplant when I was 10. And at this point, did they have a name for this condition? They were calling it glycogen storage disease or some variant thereof, which is in and of itself a, a rare set of muscle diseases mm -hmm. um, where the body cannot break down glucose into energy. So you okay. kind of store it in the muscles and therefore cannot uh, produce as much energy as you might otherwise. Um, but it didn't quite fit in terms of both genotype and phenotype. The way the disease was progressing didn't really line up with the, the known conditions, um, and it didn't really fit into uh, genetically what they would expect to, to see when, when they do this type of uh, diagnostic test. So it wasn't one of those conditions, but in any case, it was bad enough that my heart uh, was affected. I had a transplant, um, and I had to spend really the almost a year major major exactly. major for such a young i mean 10 i mean obviously although the battery of tests alone at age eight and nine are can be fairly traumatic yeah. right and and then to move from that to to a whole heart transplant at age 10 and this my daughter's not... 10 <laughs> my daughter's 10 that would be terrifying I mean, to, it, to live it, through for it, me as a mother too you <laughs> can imagine happy. right wow yeah so That's i mean terrifying Props to my parents for, uh, right? for making it through that. But, you know. And you. <laughs> well, you know, I'll say for me, it was, it was a really transformative moment. And the reason why I'm sort of singling out the heart transplant here is it made me, uh, it, it, to deal with rejection issues, you know, my body attacking the foreign organ, I had to start taking immunosuppressive medications uh, mm -hmm. from that point on which meant for almost a year, I was not allowed to go outside. I was not allowed to play mm. on the playground with my friends. I was not allowed to see people, really. Um, You've had a whole pre-COVID experience of this, living, being sort of indoors with the confined to not having any contamination from others. Exactly. And, you know, as a, a 10, 11-year-old child, for me, that experience was certainly traumatic, but it was also transformative in the sense that it made me start to explore my identity a bit. You know, mm -hmm. what, the way that I put it, everyone else was outside of the playground. I was inside reading Kant and Hegel, trying to figure <laughs> out, you know, okay, tell us, like, what makes me different? Why am I going through this? Uh, mm -hmm. what, does, what is my disability doing to my, to, to my perspective? Um, and it's roughly at this, at this time that, um, 
you know, it comes out that uh, I find, well, rather, I find my first kind of foothold into Japan in Japanese anime um, as Mm. this thing that I could watch at home where I'm able to engage in this other world, unlike American cartoons, it's somewhat cerebral. Um, You know, I could kind of do philosophical exploration through anime um, in the early 2000s that I would not have been able to do with Tom and Jerry or the Flintstones. No kidding. Or, I mean, the, yeah. certainly the, by comparison, what you can, the surreal kind of uh, invitations of the anime world that are so, so much more expansive than, right, I mean, Saturday morning cartoons in North America. <laughs> exactly. So, huh. you know, from that perspective, I, I sort of start getting an interest in Japanese studies or Japanese culture, I should say. Um, you know, certainly not, not even remotely considering academia at this point, but um, starting down the path. Um, and by the time that I get to high school, you know, my body is is still weak, but I'm able to walk uh, at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. And I decide I'm going to go to Japan. Um, this is actually another funny story. Uh, speaking about family dynamics, um, I was a junior in high school and I had decided that I wanted to do guitar lessons over the summer. Uh, I told my dad this, and my dad said, well, you have two options. You're going to summer school and you're getting a job, but guitar is not one of them. Um, (laughs) So in response to this ultimatum, I said, you know what? I'm going to go as far away as possible. I love Japan. I'm going to apply for a scholarship and not tell him, and I'm just going to go. So... Uh, it turns out I got the scholarship um, around a, a month or two before I have to go. He gets a random phone call from the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, or <laughs> some, someone in the ministry who says, we have some questions about your son's application. You know, we, we see he's disabled. Can you talk to him about, to us about that? And of course, not knowing that I applied, he's like, what what is this like so did you um, have to forge forge their signature to get <laughs> to get it in it was a recommendation letter from my high school japanese teacher actually that got me the oh, position the co-conspirator but, yeah exactly i didn't have to involve them so anyway let's just say that my dad and i had a long talk but i did manage to go um and when i was uh, in japan in high school You know, I was walking slower than everyone else. I had difficulty with stairs, but I was able to navigate them and I had the host families who really cared about me. Um, So for the most part, I wasn't really aware of the the disabled experience at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, I was more interested in, you know, how do I get to play at my favorite arcade? Where is the closest (laughs) bar? Because they're not going to card me. Um, you know, <laughs> the that, usual that, concerns of a youngin. Exactly right. So, and you were experiencing uh, a, I guess, what is more of a a, a usual. You know, you'd survived <laughs> heart transplant, um, and I guess as long as you were going at a little bit, you know, easier pace on your body, then you could largely experience uh, maybe things as per usual. Yeah. So you know that that's really what it was. Like I. I developed enough uh, sort of knowledge base around who I am, what my limits were physically, what my limits were Mm -hmm. emotionally, where I could and couldn't go. That by the time that I was, you know, 17, I had a pretty good idea of how to navigate the world around me, or at least I thought I did. I was very arrogant and brash, as you might expect a teenager to be. Um, But, you know, I wasn't thinking about, huh, I wonder how a wheelchair user will get around Tokyo. I wasn't thinking about... Because that would about, be useful to me in a couple of years. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, if, if anything, honestly, it was the opposite. I was in denial for a very long time about my disability. Um, because I was getting slowly weaker over time, I didn't want to see the changes. I didn't want to think about going into a wheelchair. Um, because for me, that was a sort of existential dread at that point. Yeah. Um, it's it's only later that I realized how much of a boon and how much of a gift being disabled would actually be for my identity. Um, <laughs> let me let me let me talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So when I when I got to college, um, you know, uh, I went back to Japan. 
Uh, I did my college in the U.S., but studied abroad again. Um, and when I was studying abroad, uh, this was 2012, I went in a wheelchair. Um, I, by that point, could no longer That's park. your second trip to Japan? Yeah. So I, I was able to walk a little bit, but for most of the long-distance stuff, I was using a wheelchair. And I realized at that moment that even though I went via a study abroad program that coordinated all of my accommodations from my housing to my train to my in-school classroom accommodations, um, a single step up was enough to keep me out of the bars and the, the places that I was going in high school. Uh, and no matter what the school did, no matter what the people around me were doing, they weren't necessarily able to help me overcome all the barriers that I was facing in everyday life. Um, at the time, I was a philosophy major. I was really interested in the sort of dynamic of what separated me as a disabled person versus someone else. Um, so uh, I decided to explore that um, alongside uh, or through some of the courses I was taking actually, which far from a disability studies angle, far from even a Jap necessarily like Japan angle, uh, I was looking at Buddhism actually, as I was trying to figure out what my identity was. Connecting was, the dots from Hegel to Kant, and then over to the to the Eastern traditions or the Japanese uh, Buddhist traditions of existential thinking. Exactly. So you know, I had on the one hand, I had these lived experiences of barriers that were inconveniences. But every inconvenience was enough to kind of get me starting to think, well, wait a minute, why am I experiencing this? Let me turn to, you know, Kukai, this ninth century philosopher who talks about the way that uh, different bodies are shaped and, and how do you get to enlightenment this way or that way. And um, I was uh, doing a lot of exploration. Um, I got home to the US after that experience in college and decided that I had to keep this research going. I wanted to know more about, you know, what Buddhists thought about disability, what Buddhists thought about uh, the experiences that I was having. Uh, because again, I'd kind of been sheltered in this study abroad program where they had designed mm -hmm. everything. I knew there was a world outside. I'd seen the, the barriers, but I wasn't fully immersed in them. I wasn't fully knowledgeable about them. I wanted more. During um, that second trip yeah. uh, in 2012, did you already start attempting to visit the temples and realizing that it was not so accessible to your wheelchair, or was that later? So that was my third trip, which uh, this okay. is a good, a good bridge. You know, as I mentioned, I came back home and I wanted to do more. Well, when I graduated college, I did a Fulbright uh, grant to uh, Japan, where I was going to study the connection between Buddhism and disability. Um, my first trip was supposed to be at Koyasan uh, University, which for those listeners who don't know, imagine a pristine monastery on top of a secluded mountain in the middle of nowhere. Um, that was basically where I was supposed to be, which, you know, historically, <laughs> Secluded Buddhist monasteries are not the most accessible places for wheelchair users. Um, and at that point in time, you know, I, they were very generous. They'd offered to build me a house to be able to accommodate me. Uh, but up I- Up top the mountain? On top, up top the mountain. With, with like an uh, elevator rise that would get you there? There was like a cable car and everything. But uh, oh. I, I it, it would not have worked for a number of reasons. Like there wasn't yeah. accessible food nearby, for instance. Uh, so I had to decline and say, okay, if I can't go there, where else can I go? Um, I started applying to different schools. This was in 2014. So I applied to a bunch of schools in Kyoto, uh, places, uh, I, I won't name individual names, but uh, those programs at that point in time were not legally required to provide accommodations for disabled students. Um, so left and right, I was getting turned down. You know, I'm sorry, we can't accommodate you. We don't have the facilities. It's not even that we don't have the desires. We, we don't have the, the uh, infrastructure right now to make it happen. 
And I really, I went through a list of like seven or eight schools, couldn't find an affiliation. And even after I did and got on the ground, uh, I was in Tokyo, I could not find housing. You know, I had to look at, I believe the number was roughly 270,000 apartments on uh, one of the sort of main uh, rental sites. You click on the barrier free or accessibility option, you get maybe 700. And each of those 700 was accessible to someone, but none of them worked for me because I came with this big foreign power chair. Uh, I came with you know my own medical conditions, my rare disability that no one else had, so no one knew how to accommodate it necessarily. Um, so I was having trouble finding a school, finding housing. And then as you mentioned, when I finally got on the ground to go do my research at these temples, so many hurdles you've already just so many hurdles just okay now ready you're ready to start do some research and get out there and visit the temples and exactly and everywhere is stairs everywhere um you know and i couldn't get in the front door (laughs) but so here's where the value of disability comes in you know at some point i start saying well wait a minute i'm asking the wrong question why do, why do I care what monks think if I can't get in the front door? Why can't mm. I get in the front door? And if I can't, maybe someone else can't. Maybe that's affecting their experiences. So why was I having these problems finding housing, finding transportation, finding access to my research archives? Mm. I became really interested in this question during my year of Fulbright research and decided, you know what? I need to get an answer. I need to figure out what resources are out there for access in Japan. At the time, uh, you know, you mentioned Josh Grisdale at the start of this call. Josh's website, Accessible Japan, was one of the few resources around. Um, It gave a database of uh, different tourist attractions, different uh, services that might be available for a short-term stay, but there was nothing about long-term life with access in Japan uh, for someone like me. And that's what drove me to start my PhD was to answer this question because I couldn't find anyone else who talked about it. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I would imagine from a Canadian perspective, given, you know, I would imagine that in some ways providing the baseline information about accessible housing is going to come back to the legislation uh, requiring different buildings to, one, be built to certain codes and accessibility codes, and then how they are labeled, and then in the rental community, how those rental units are publicly and transparently listed, and what are the criteria that you have to transparently show in your listings. Um, So much of that, I would imagine, comes from government-led regulations and providing transparent information to the population and in support of citizens and residents who have disabilities. So in that sense, is it completely left unregulated and left to a private sector actor like Josh Christel with his, you know, largely not-for-profit effort of his own precious time going in to research this, is there not a more holistic uh, Japanese national government public information offering that's trying to standardize this information for Japanese citizens and residents here? So there are different legal systems that have regulated standards. So for instance, Japan's first uh, accessibility law for public transportation that mandates access has passed in 2000. Um, in 2006, that law gets expanded to include certain public facilities. By the time that I was doing this Buddhist research in 2014, that was the year that Japan ratified the United Nations Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which institutes its own um, requirements and standards. But even though these standards exist, they are, first off, not hard and fast. There's a lot of room for negotiation. So, for example, the term that often gets thrown around today, reasonable accommodation in facilities, well, what counts as reasonable? Who gets to decide what reasonable is? Is it, are we building um, a facility for a big wheelchair or a small wheelchair? Uh, Put another way, 
I'll go to one of my favorite examples here just to illustrate this point. I came to Japan in a huge, huge foreign wheelchair. All the toilets were way too low. I could get onto them, but could not get back off when I wanted to get into my chair. This created problems because I couldn't go outside and use facilities, really. Mm. Meanwhile, my Japanese friends who went to the U.S. in their smaller Japanese chairs could not use the taller toilets for the exact opposite problem. So right. the standards are there, but who were they built for? Why are they built that way? Uh, what flexibility do they have? What accommodations do they have? Even in one space, so the bathroom, for instance, is tough. But now trying to imagine coordinating that across different parts of society. So let's say we're talking about employment for a minute. Well, if you need access to employment, just fixing the workplace is not enough. You need the educational qualifications to get that job, which means fixing the school. But fixing the school is not enough because you need access to the transit system to get there. And if the transit system is, you know, it, it spirals out. So even though there was some government regulation in place, what I was experiencing was a mismatch between the government sect uh, sectors in, in, in each of these spheres, the private actors who are, you know, operating uh, with good, everyone with goodwill, everyone trying to build access in a way that helps people, but not necessarily coordinated. And I was in the middle of it trying to deal with these ambiguous and uh, liquid understandings of what was accessible for who. Well, so. and I think we, we see that across so many different, and I mean, we've had fruitful conversations about intersectional diversity and recognizing the diversity within each social group, right? Within each identity group. And so when you talk about the diversity of wheelchair users, and the diversity of wheelchairs, right? I mean, that alone, understanding and making sure that the legal framework and the guidelines are even acknowledging that there isn't just one cookie cutter definition of a wheelchair. There is this full diversity of not only the users themselves, but also the wheelchairs themselves, and then thinking that forward into the build out. And that, that would be the same. I mean, when I've looked at you know, feminist advocacy movements that are, we're working across so many different issues. And like you say, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that building out that ecosystem to really capture all the core elements and coordinate it through some formal recognition of those full diversities is challenging. And it takes a lot of thought leadership out of both governments and private sector and nonprofit sector, you know, nonprofit sector, all ramming in the same direction with a with a more sophisticated paradigm, right? And, and certainly for Enjoy, we're trying to build knowledge and literacy about intersectional diversity for that purpose because it's such a powerful tool. But um, definitely, I, I can just imagine how then, and in Japan, and like yourself, so many individuals are in this maze of piecemeal, disparate initiatives um, or in the corporate workplaces, you know, we're seeing that as well on so many different pain points, be it gender, LGBTQ inclusion, accessibility, yeah. uh, racial yeah. inclusion. And, and, you know, part of the problem you run into here, and I really encountered this during my, my most recent trip, my current trip to Japan, uh, where I started as a visiting researcher at the University of Tokyo in 2018, is even if even if you are able to navigate all of these disparate accessibilities and you're able to get the education and the employment and the transportation and the home care and the medical care and, and somehow carve together a system that works for the individual, the individual may not even be able to vocalize their problems to all of these different actors. They might not know where to start. So, you know, Absolutely. if I want to fix a barrier for myself or for someone else, who do I talk to about that? Should I be talking to the government? Should I be talking to um, a corporate stakeholder? Should I be talking to another mm -hmm. disability advocacy or uh, individual organization? Um, figuring out who to talk to, how to talk to them, how to create an environment where those conversations can occur and people feel mm -hmm. comfortable talking about accessibility or inaccessibility. Um, these type of issues are extremely 
uh, delicate and require uh, you know a lot of background knowledge, honestly. So what what, what I came to to realize through my uh, my doctoral work and through my lived experiences as as an accessibility and disability consultant is there's a very long history to the reasons why Japan's access looks the way it does. There's a very long history behind the reasons why I was experiencing the particular problems that I had and my friends in the disability community were experiencing their own problems. You know, we mentioned intersectionality. Some groups have had power, some groups haven't. Some groups have been privileged, some groups haven't. Um, thinking about who's in power now uh, and what could be done to level the scales a little bit so we can create an equitable space for conversation um, around accessibility, around intersectionality. Um, that's one of the big missions I think we have at Enjoy. Um, and one of the big missions I think we have as members of a, of a global society, whether we're talking about Japan, the US or Canada, you know, the, the, the access coordination I was talking about earlier, the barriers that I faced at temples you may, if you're living in the U.S., you might be thinking about them in relation to your local church, in relation to your local school, your local, um, you know, uh, business, whatever it might be. There is a similar type of problem occurring in many cultures around the world right now, and not just in these different spaces. If I could highlight one thing, it's the fact that different countries' access systems affect other places as well. Right. So, so for instance, the technologies that Japan is building right now, let's talk about, you know, caregiving robots ahead of the Olympics. Um, these are going to get sent to Germany and change how caregiving works in Germany. And the, the developments from Germany are going to get sent to the U.S. And we're, we're all kind of interlocked and in helping each other uh, and potentially hurting each other a little bit in the sense that if the technology doesn't necessarily match up, we're actually reinforcing barriers instead of getting rid of them. Right. And that can create some economic difficulties that can create physical hardships, medical hardships. So one thing that we have to think about, what are the local and global implications of our actions and how do we optimize that system? Because at the end of the day, and this is something that I, I really want to stress. If I can end my personal narrative and move into the the, the, the the sort of consulting end of here is to say, I think if there's one thing that I've learned recently, uh, and I'm going to pull us into the coronavirus moment moment because that's where we are, um, <clears throat> it's that leaving anyone behind leaves everyone behind. So right now, for a number of reasons, uh, disabled people are being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. Uh, people who cannot necessarily go out to get resources, uh, whether it's because they're susceptible to infection or because they have to re uh, rely on caregivers to help them do so. For whatever reason, um, disabled people in a lot of cases are susceptible to infection. And when someone gets the coronavirus, then everyone's at risk, right? Um, well, that same logic of infection or spreading uh, hardship or difficulty applies to every element of access making, whether we're talking about, you know, the education system. So let's say that I need to get access to schooling to get a job. Well, if I don't get that schooling, then someone is going to have to help me navigate life in another way. And that affects yeah. their life, right? So we talk about care economies or the way that yes. people are interlocked uh, working together. And I think that if I'm trying to say anything here, it's simply that we need to think about what we're doing, how we're helping other people, how we might be disadvantaging other people, and what we can do to optimize that system, because it has real physical, emotional, and perhaps above all to a lot of different people, economic benefits. You know, right. and I think absolutely. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And certainly, 
now we're dealing with COVID, but certainly I guess from my perspective, when I was in Sendai in 2011 and experienced the triple disaster and then built those connections into the research I was doing across, you know, where are the gaps in policymaking for not recognizing the diversity of family formations who are now not being supported post-disaster, you sort of realize that the concept of resilience has to be a collective concept. If it's not a collective definition, then resilience is empty because individual resilience is not going to make our economies bounce back and recover quickly. Individual resilience and survival is not going to be the key um, to community, you know, revival and well-being and relations of trust across neighborhoods and families and having a sense of normalcy again or psychological safety within our societies and workplaces. It has to be collective. And I guess I want to return to one thing you mentioned that really I think is so, for me as a political scientist thinking, or I guess a student of democracy for, you know, life. I mean, I, I think we're always a student of democracy, but for me, when you mention that even if the individual wanted to try to help solve problems of access for themselves, knowing who to talk to, knowing how to talk about these issues, having enough education and literacy and understanding about the history of disability and accessibility in Japan, understanding which what governments do, which government office. Do you go to the gender equality office if you're a woman with a disability or do you go to the disability window or do you go to the multicultural you know, cohesion window because you're a foreigner? And so this is where our intersectional diversities all kind of bubble down to if governments are acting and dealing with these pieces all in silos, the foreigners go to this window, the women go to this window, and the disability community go to this window. Well, what if you're all three? Which window do you go to? And that's the very point of Kimberly Crenshaw's you know, pivotal work on intersectionality, of identifying that complexity of who's falling through the cracks when we make these superficial groups and identities and then think that we're only solving for one at a time in a silo from the others. They have to be thought, you know, thought of and these inequalities are cross-cutting. But then to be able to even advocate, because what we're really talking about is advocacy, being able to advocate for oneself and for one's freedom and for one's liberty and one's right to equality, one's right to have access. We're all paying taxes. Why is it that I have more access than you? Right. We're all having this kind of role within society as contributing members and individuals as residents. So then why are these these, you know, chronic inequalities not being dealt with? And I find it interesting how much we take, I think, you know, the logic of the social contract and democratic you know, political philosophy really takes for granted that any individual can be a fully engaged citizen and do advocacy and self-represent coherently and competently and know to which government to go and speak to, to, to go and call up your city councilor and just go have that conversation and get her done. We take for granted political philosophy, right? This is one of the key gaps that I've been struggling with is democracy itself hasn't been diversified in our theories to understand the complexities of all the different types of individual diversities and individual realities and competencies that not everybody is a good advocate for themselves. Not everybody wants to do advocacy for themselves. So then what? Then who advocates? Where does that role go? And, and it could be something, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about your comment about in the United States, not being able to get access to your church based on disability and accessibility issues. That would be a core, you know, freedom of conscience and freedom of, of religion issue to be denied access, which maybe is was not part of the, the framing of the conversation of how you were looking even at access to, to temples here. But how does that intersect with freedom of conscience within a free and democratic society? If you can't get access to go and preach or to go and pray or to commune with those who have a similar faith to yourself. So, so many of these, I guess, core issues of democratic self-government and then thinking about who cares, who can care, about these issues and who can care enough to advocate? And then do they have the competencies to actually go do that advocacy? Because if they don't, you know, I think about, and certainly elderly communities and, and my, my mother's experience of caregiving for my father um, when he was dealing with, with cancer for many, many years, my mother becomes the patient advocate for my father. She's the one who now has to go engage and just nonstop make sure that access is not being denied to my father, 
but you need a strong advocate working for you, right? Yeah, and you're hitting on one of the key issues here, which is the burden has to go somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, if it's not on the uh, marginalized individual, be they disabled or have some other sort of intersectional marginality, it's pushed onto the people who work in the communities around them or the communities around those communities. Um, right. It's sent around the globe. So th there's always going to be some push to create access on someone. Um, but what you said reminded me of a, of a point that I wanted to make earlier, which is the danger of assuming that we have that knowledge. The, dan the danger of assuming we know what access is or, or how to include people. Because uh, the problem with that is, let's say, for example, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a case study here. Let's say we're building accessible toilets uh, in Rwanda, and those toilets are being built by a Japanese company. Well, the Japanese company is building to Japanese standards. Uh, they bring the toilets to Rwanda, and they find out that they don't fit Rwandan wheelchairs because they're at the wrong height. Well, those toilets are essentially useless uh, for the disabled people who might want to use them. But not only that, they give the publics around those disabled people the impression that the issue has been solved. Mm. We have access. We have these accessible toilets. We don't get to see the disabled experience. We don't get to see that in access necessarily um, so we're reinforcing a bad behavior that then increases that burden I was talking about a minute ago, mm -hmm. somewhere down the road. By creating inaccess now, we're basically saying we'll pay more later to fix it, or right. there's going to be big, big problems. So one of the things here is it's not enough to simply have knowledge. It has to be knowledge soon in a way that guides our behavior so that we don't have that big burden hanging over our hands 10, 20, 30 years down the road, especially in a place like Japan, where we have you know, the world's fastest aging population, roughly 30% over the age of 65. This is just going to keep getting to be a bigger issue. you know. Right. Mobility issues become accessibility issues, become disability inclusion issues, right? We have and I mean, simply thinking about, I mean, the example you've given, there's this idea that in the private sector, with all of the hype around universal design and, and all of that and keeping, you know, beta testing and agility, but beta testing for the minimum viable iteration of a product means that you're doing the strict minimum. You're not actually saying, okay, we have a product that we want to test on. 50 different types of people with disabilities because we understand that people with disabilities have diversity and there is an internal breadth of, you know, competencies and, and abilities and disabilities, diverse abilities that we need to then also beta test for. That's not necessarily what we're seeing coming out of a capitalist logic of do the strict minimum and just get it to market and test it for the average median person. Yep. And, and so uh, the whole logic, right, is not even attempting to acknowledge the diversity of, of each of those potential user groups that they think they're dissolving, designing and solving for. And the most ironic thing is that it's a losing proposition. I mean, if you think about the long-term economic benefits, it makes so much more sense to include those stakeholders from the beginning, because as we've been mentioning, the burden is gonna fall on the people around them who have to make up the difference. If right. you can have it be accessible for a lot of people from the start, have it be something that's flexible, customizable, changeable over time, then you're actually going to be in a position to uh, support a lot more people, both you know physically, emotionally, but again, economically, it just seems like the right move. So there is a conversation around, well, how did you do that? And this comes back to our earlier point. How do you get people at the table to know where to go, to know who to talk to, to know what to ask, to know if they can ask? Um, you know, th th this is, I think, one of the core And to be asking the missions. right questions. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. So, you know, as, as consultants, as academics, I think this is one of the kind of core issues that we grapple with is, well, how do you create that knowledge? How do you create that space for having conversation? And certainly, I mean, one of the 
you know, core elements for Enjoy as a, as a company that's, that's committed to, you know, intersectional diversity as a core practice and a business model and a practice. Um, it's really been, I think, for me, a journey over the last, you know, year and a half to say, have, setting up Enjoy as a solopreneurship with me sharing my consulting, you know, advice around that concept and that, that idea of intersectional diversity, I soon decided it didn't work with the feminist ethic of wanting to have a team of 10 and even 15 different diverse colleagues, each with a different lived reality and professional expertise that all of us can enrich each other with that sharing and that lifelong learning as we work together, as we, we reveal to each other and uncover the different kinds of blind spots that will be in all of our heads because we can never close off all of the, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So we all bring in that depth of professional expertise, but we also bring in our lived realities so that we are thinking through. And I guess sometimes in the tech field, they call this dog fooding. If it's not going to work for the enjoy team and all of the diversity of the enjoy team, it's probably not going to work in a corporation, right? So we want to test what we think to be a good praxis of thinking about all of the blind spots of those those complex, uh, the complex build out of what we need to be agile around and thinking around the maximum range of individual users or individual contexts and the workplace context that we're solving for to maximize equality and maximize access um, so that we know how to then offer and recommend to other organizations how to do that. So it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that's constantly it's theory, it's, it's, you know, it's feminist political philosophy, it's feminist legal studies, if you will, and, and critical race studies brought into dialogue with queer theory, with the disability and accessibility studies that you've been pioneering in. And all of that coming together also with our individual lived realities and our professional passions for this, <laughs> for this work. Exactly. I mean, you know, just in the course of this conversation, we've narrated, you know, my personal life history a little bit. I've spoken about philosophy a little bit. I've spoken about, you know, the different partners I've engaged with from Buddhist monks to corporations to academics to, you know, engineers. Um, and, you know, today I get to spend, you know, I spend my time talking with, tomorrow I'm at the U.S. Embassy, the next day I'm at the Olympics, about the Chamber of Commerce. And I'm speaking to these partners and trying to get them to see how they're part of the conversation how the conversation uh, could work better if they include um, everyone in all these different spheres. And I think right. one of the things that, we've, that, that we're that we doing that I'm, I'm personally uh, really passionate about and affected by is this idea that we are combining our personal expertise with our policy expertise, with our partnerships, with these uh, different organizations and individuals to really push the dial uh, when it comes to the conversation around access and inclusion. I mean, uh, th there's so many steps left to be taken. Uh, if we're talking about disability inclusion, I'll, I'll give a, a little, little bit of history. I, I've, been I've been pushing it off, not wanting to go there, but I'll say, you know, in 2016, Japan implemented its first uh, law for the elimination of discrimination against persons with disabilities. That was four years ago. Uh, the following year, there was a cabinet office survey that said that 77% of the public didn't know that law existed. So awareness is just starting. Uh, that law allowed for accommodations in schools. What does that mean? Well, if disabled students are getting education, they might get employment. If they're getting employment, they might be able to vocalize. And if they're able to vocalize, that will change how everyone thinks about access and inclusion. So we are at the precipice historically right. of a major turning point in the conversation around access and inclusion. And I think doing this work, um, whether you are a consultant, whether you are um, an entrepreneur, whether you are uh, someone working in this with or around disabled people and, and those in their communities, um, it's such an important moment for Japan and for the world right now. So it's just, uh, it's it's really essential that we get this step right, that we start exactly. having these conversations, right? 
And we're going to be, of course, uh, as a team, we're developing uh, teaser workshops, if you will, boot camps for people who are senior leaders and middle managers and learning and development professionals, everyone in between who would be interested in having a boot camp, a three-hour workshop to sort of get their, I guess, feet wet in understanding the complexities of these issues, the the opportunities, really the opportunities to build these into their systems and to think about getting it right from the beginning, because it is a is an economic opportunity, right, when we think about it. Um, and helping people see that economic opportunity is, I think, part of our mandate uh, as, a, as our team. Um, and then also combining that with the other workshops we'll offer to help people think about why is, you know, what do you, how do we deal with uh, someone who might be lesbian, has a disability, and is a Japanese national and is trying to integrate a workplace environment that is homophobic and not accessible and kind of sexist towards women. Those are a lot of different issues for that one individual to, to champion. Having teams that understand all of those different inequalities or, or, or challenges creates empathy and it creates potential for allyship. It creates potential for all of those different stakeholders in the company to move the dial together and build a better workplace environment for all of those different groups together. And I think that's the the win-win ultimately for diversity and inclusion and also for innovation, right? So to really think forward, innovation is exciting. You know, imagine like killing five birds with one policy option. And you, because you've thought outside the box about how these things are interdependent. How, I just think that's absolutely exciting. Now I realize maybe I'm a, a policy geek, but I, We've had so many, you know, wonderful conversations about this, Mark, that I find so exciting because it is. It's exciting innovation. Well, let me pick up on this for a sec. So let's talk about the innovation potential in real concrete terms. I mentioned COVID earlier. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, When everyone went online last spring, uh, many people, many corporations were having such a hard time transitioning to Zoom. They didn't really know how to get us online or how to facilitate meetings. Meanwhile, members of the disabled community who do not have physical access to a lot of spaces have been using uh, remote communications technologies like Zoom for the last 20 years. Uh, And these folks are the experts who can then use their knowledge to inform uh, non-disabled populations' behavior, to inform the way of uh, building better business practices, and that doesn't just mean that we're getting a disabled alternative or a disabled replacement. No, it means it's a that we're new getting norm. Exactly. For we're, getting, we're getting synthesis and we're getting innovation. And that innovation right. is profitable for both parties, disabled and non-disabled. It's interesting that you mentioned that example because I was on a panel uh, for women's leadership uh, counts out of the United States. Uh, and uh, we had one of the keynote speakers was the North American president of Itochu. And her observation was when they went, you know, uh, digital uh, in North America, and they had to realize and figure out in some ways all of the different uh, work-life balance issues and challenges that this was throwing at all of their teams who didn't know how to do team building remotely. They didn't understand, you know, how do you separate your, your work and your life when you're always at work and life? It is all in one location. And of course, what they learned from that was that, of course, mothers... And the parents, the active caregiving parts, uh, you know, staff, they were the experts in that piece of how to juggle and and carve out work-life balance. But no one, when they were drafting their COVID response policy, thought to go check in with all of their their working parents to say, hmm, you might have some advice on how to how to do this and you're used to flex work and you're used to scheduling around homeschooling options or PTA meetings. Maybe we should bring you into the conversation because you're experts in this. And it was such an interesting and vulnerable learning that she shared on on that conference that echoes exactly what you've said about how that was a a learning for all, for all staff and, and, and employees at that point. Yeah. And, you know, again, it comes back to the intersectional possibilities not just local to Japan, but global. You know, right. how is a how is a 30-year-old disabled American like myself going to be able to add value to the conversation in Japan? And how am I going to be able to translate that value back to the U.S.? Uh, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> You're adding so much value. <laughs> so much. Yeah. That's, we're going to share, right? We're sharing, obviously, today on this interview, but we're going to keep yeah. sharing and and certainly stay tuned because we hope to have Mark also hosting uh, some of these live stream conversations uh, also in the fall. So we can we can share even further uh, with his thought leadership in this area. 
And I would love to, if I could, Mark, we have a few minutes left. What would be your main key message to the audience listening um, out of your lived experience and your intense uh, professional expertise on these areas? So I think uh, to sum it up very briefly, disability saves non-disabled lives. Put another way, the world that we live in, the trains that we take, the schools that we go to, the workplaces that we inhabit, the entertainment venues that we spend our time at, all of these are shaped by access. That access is built for many different people with many different types of bodies and many different types of minds, but we're all interdependent as we've seen through this conversation. And I think that recognizing that interdependence and actively embracing it, actively starting from a disabled position, for instance, and thinking about how, wait a minute, if a wheelchair user needs access to that to the space, what can I do to make life easier for them and therefore myself, because I'm also embedded in that space? Right. That way of thinking can change the world. And I think the, the idea that we need to invite people to the table, we need to get that expertise and we need to act on it. That's yeah. my sort of takeaway here is, you know, if a disabled American who travels back and forth between Japan and the U.S. is able to, in some way, change the and make life better for uh, folks in Japan. Well, my Japanese colleagues can do the same thing, and I really hope that going forward, we'll all do what we can to embrace diversity, uh, to work towards innovation, and to make the world a more inclusive, interesting, and well, fun place. Exactly. Awesome. That is a fabulous takeaway. And I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So on that note, um, please allow me to thank you, Mark, for joining today at Diversity Rocks Innovation. Um, this has been a really stimulating conversation. And I, I am so grateful that, uh, you know, you're having your 30th birthday today and that you did uh, pursue beyond the 30 days that you initially were told you might live uh, so many years ago, um, and that you've pursued across so many different challenges through experiencing Japan first time with sort of more full access, second time, a little bit less access, third time, again, different levels of access. And the learnings that you bring forward out of that with all of your professional, obviously deep, deep research um, and, and policy expertise on these issues, bringing that together is so inspiring to me. Um, and so I'm very grateful that you're, uh, you've joined the, uh, the Enjoy Diversity Innovation team as a consultant and as an educator. I think uh, you have a lot that we're going to be sharing um, and that you're already sharing with our team. And I feel very blessed. So thank you for that. And um, of course, we uh, as a team have lots of things happening. We're preparing actually for uh, a pitch next week uh, with uh, Impact Tech Accelerator that is uh, funded by the Nippon Foundation. And so our team is slowly preparing for that pitch. Um, so we will be taking a break next Tuesday and also during the Golden Week period so that we uh, can move forward and also engage in some self-care as a team. Um, we will return uh, for the next Volume 12 on May 11th, featuring, uh, I guess, the individual who gave me the inspiration to have this live stream. And so JJ Walsh is who we're going to be welcoming. Um, she runs the Seeking Sustainability series. And um, when I started watching that, I thought, wow, that's a great way to change the conversation around sustainability. Why don't I do that for Enjoy? And why don't we do that on, you know, about diversity and innovation? So that really was uh, such an inspiration. So we'll we'll come back on, on May 11th with JJ Walsh. Thank you, Mark. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales.
good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.